This is a Broad Pods production. You're listening to the Leaky Pipeline podcast. Welcome to this episode. Construction is much more than bricks and hammers. It's an industry for all people to work in. On this show, we sit down with changemakers to discuss the passion, the opportunities, the struggles and the changes that they're taking to bring more people, especially women, into construction. Hi, I'm Lauren. I'm really excited to share this conversation with Paula Gerber, who is the founder of Nowick in Australia. Paula is so inspiring. She's a construction lawyer and has a really interesting perspective on the whole industry after working in it in Australia, California and in the UK. Today, she shares with us her thoughts on the unconscious bias that still exists in the construction industry and how having many different perspectives, women, men, minorities, help to solve a problem and how useful that is in our industry and how changing the laws to include targets and quotas can help shift the culture in construction. Paula Gerber, I'm a professor at the Monash University Law Faculty and I have to say that it's really hard for me to see how um, how NAWIC has taken off in Australia because everyone says NAWIC and um, <laughs> in America it's very much NAWIC and so I came here with that uh, pronunciation in mind and uh, it hasn't taken off. Everyone calls it NAWIC but I haven't been able to change. <laughs> and and so Paula, I think today I really want to deep dive. There's so many people that are, are, are fans of you and your work and, and that are in NAWIC <laughs> um, and I think... What they would like to hear, just like I would love to hear, is your journey and how you started Nawik all those years ago. Well, to start at the beginning, I did what many Australians do, which is uh, once you get your law degree, you buy a backpack and a one-way ticket <laughs> and you end up overseas. And I did that and uh, I was away for 10 years. Wow. And five of those were spent in London and five in California. And when I came back to Australia, I had two ideas of things that I wanted to um, import into the country, if you like, for overseas. I often think, you know, it's a pity I didn't come up with something that was actually, I could monetize, like, you know, import Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Because when I came back, there were no Ben and Jerry's ice cream yet. But um, I landed, the two things that I landed on were that there was no graduate construction law education program at all. It, it, just no construction or education, full stop. And in the in London, I did a master's at King's College in construction law, and that's what sort of made me a construction lawyer, I guess. So, you know, the first thing was I... Well, actually, it wasn't the first thing. That was the first idea. The second idea was NAWIC, because in California, um, you know, I'd landed there after winning a green card in the lottery that they, oh, the Americans wow. had green cards, <laughs> and I... You know, past the California bar exam, and, and suddenly I'm an attorney. And um, I joined a construction law firm that was the best sort of construction law firm in Los Angeles, but it was 18 lawyers, and they were all men. They never employed a female lawyer before, let alone an Australian one. So wow. that was some cultural uh, fit issues there, let's say. And um, so I looked for my people, my tribe, and I found NAWIC. And so I joined the the local chapter and they had monthly dinners and it just was a beautiful connection for me there. And so when I came back to Australia, I moved to Melbourne where 
I'd never left before. I'm originally a, a Brisbane girl. So again, I didn't know many people. So I looked for the Nawick chapter and it didn't exist. So I um, I started as my EA at the time said, calling every woman who'd ever picked up a hammer <laughs> and set up an initial meeting at uh, the offices of King and Wood Malisets, which is where I was working at the time. And, you know, I had over 100 women coming along wow. and it was a 7 a.m. breakfast meeting and I thought, well, they'll all be gone by, you know, eight or nine at the latest. And I had to sort of shoo them out of the <laughs> building. They were all so excited to be there and the possibility of, of Nawick. And then they talked to people in Sydney and they said, well, we want this up here. And, and so, you know, I spent you know a couple of years traveling around Australia, setting up chapters of Nawick and to New Zealand and set up uh, chapters there as well. Oh, that's amazing. And, and look where it's come. I mean, this is 28 years now in the making and this is your baby. And, and look at the growth. I mean, we have 10,000 members in Nawick now, which is just insane. I'm, I'm blown away. And um, yes, you know, I was the one who set it up, but it's got to where it's got to now by the the dedication and the hard work and the commitment of so many women across the country who are all really yeah, dedicated to, to NAWIC and to its missions. Oh, 100%. Our volunteers are the heart and soul of NAWIC. And it's, yes. you know, it's an amazing networking um, community for women in construction. It really well, is. One of the things that really struck me at the, at the start of it is how many men were interested in joining. Oh, uh, wow. When I sort of talked to them about what this was about, it was a couple of things. But one of them was that, you know, they don't like just being in all male cultures. It's it's not fun for them. Yeah. And But the other thing was this is the only organisation, association within the industry that covers the whole industry. You know, we've got the Institute of Architects, we've got the Master Builders Association, we've got the Engineers Australia, we've got Australian Institute of Quantity Surveyors, they're all these silos. And they expand the whole industry. And they, men and women, love the fact that they are going to meet such a diverse group of people when they go to NAWIC events. Yeah, and they are really great. They're really lovely events. Everybody's very welcoming. It's such a beautiful um synergy of people coming together and even, you know, seeing the male champions in the room is just phenomenal because we know yeah. we need men to help us change and shift the culture. Yes. And I think, you know, you you touched on a really great point where you said the men don't want to be in just a male dominated industry, you know, just working with men. So what do you think is that special difference that women bring to the industry? I think it is um, the cognitive diversity is a term that I come up with to describe the importance of having a diverse array of people in the room because that is the antidote to groupthink. And when you have all the same people trying to solve a problem, they're all going to come up with the same solutions. Uh, 100%. And when you get Indigenous people and people with disability and women and LGBTIQ people and immigrants, you get a much more holistic, constructive approach to the problem and you get people thinking about things in, in ways that they wouldn't have thought about it before. And, you know, interestingly, I just heard on the radio that NASA has been in Australia setting up an Indigenous 
um, space station or space program in Australia. And people ring up the radio going, you know, once you get into space, what does it matter whether you're Indigenous or non-Indigenous? This is ridiculous. And the this female astronaut who's one of the leaders of the program said, you know, I can tell you that when you're in space and problems arise, you need every different way of thinking and approaching about the problem to find the, the right solution. So getting Indigenous people on on um, rockets going into space is really critical. So it's not just about the construction industry. It's all facets of life that we need to have diverse brains working together. Oh, and I love that. I couldn't agree more. I think that is exactly what the world needs to start doing is just embracing everybody as who they are and what they can bring rather than trying to fit people into these silos of this is how it's done or this is what we do and that's all we do. Yeah. I really love that. And so I want to kind of dive deeper into um, when you started out in construction. So did you, how easy was it for women to get a start in construction when you joined? Uh, Almost impossible. Uh, And so one of my very early experiences as a construction lawyer you know, I'd often go um, on site to, uh, you know, meet with the client, interview witnesses, etc. And I was in London, and the biggest development going on at the time was um, Canary Wharf being developed over there. And the main contractor was a Canadian company, and I was uh, sent aside to uh, interview one of the um, the workers regarding a dispute that had arisen. And I rocked up at the site gaze and there was a security guard there. And before I could even open my mouth, he said, you must be the stripper. <laughs> and, I didn't uh, expect that at all. So I was in my suit. This was the 1980s, huge shoulder pads, my briefcase. <laughs> and I thought I couldn't have looked less like a stripper. But, uh, the you know, in his mind, the only female coming to site uh, would be the stripper. Wow. And so it turned out that the solicitor and the stripper had been organised for around the same time oh, because one okay. Canadian workers was going back to Canada and this was his his send-off. His send-off, yeah, which is, yeah. still happens today. A lot of that, the strippers are, the, you know, something they use and, you know, to yeah. send people off. It's crazy. Yes. Well, and, and that's one of the frustrating things is how little has changed. I think they're a bit less... Um, sort of confident and, you know, they recognise that maybe this isn't the ideal behavioural conduct that they should be exhibiting. But, um, yeah, so so early on I was always the only uh, woman involved. And um, when I was in America, which was so five years later, uh, I had a dispute that was about whether concrete had reached the required strength in the required period of time. And the lawyer on the other side was this old white man. And he said to me, look, dear, it's like making a cake. If, you know, it's like if, if, you, know, if you need the mixture to be a bit, um, you know, more liquidy, then you add a bit more milk. And if you need it to be more solid, you add a bit more flour. And so he was, you know, trying to teach me about concrete through an analogy with baking. Um and so, oh you know, I had a lot of these sort of experiences. It, it, you know, you're either sexualized or you're treated in a paternalistic way, um, but never as actually an equal, equal person. Wow. And so what what did you find hard when you first in, entered? Was it that 
kind of misogyny. What exactly was the hardest part for you? The hardest part was the assumption that I didn't have a brain that was capable of understanding construction. Because I've got ovaries, apparently that makes me incapable of, you know, reading a program or, uh, you know, understanding a, you know, a, a defect or delay analysis. So that was the, the, the most frustrating thing. And, you know, I could, you know, fortunately I've been blessed with, you know, an okay brain and I could <laughs> turn them around pretty quickly. But the starting point was this assumption that I was not on their level in terms of um, intelligence. Yeah, right. And so do you think that still happens today? Yes. Yes. I think you start off with um, an understanding or assumption, unconscious bias, let's call it, that you're not equal and you have to prove yourself. So you're always having to prove yourself over and over again. Every time you come in contact with a new person who hasn't dealt with you before, you know, you're starting from the assumption that they've got to mansplain things to you. Yeah, and I know um, in the trade space, a lot of the the female tradies get asked if they're qualified, whereas men would never get asked that question. They just come to your door, they're here to do something, but a woman goes and they're like, uh, are you, what are you here to do? Are yeah. you qualified? That's really, um, it, it's really not okay that that happens. I mean, if 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 she's qualified or not, shouldn't be the question you're asking. It should be about the work that they're delivering yeah. at the end of the day, you know, and it's that equal, like you were saying, it's it's about being equal. Yeah. And so there were so many challenges for you. What advice would you give yourself prior to stepping in? What is the advice that you would give to young Paula <laughs> uh, all those years ago? That's a really good question. I don't know there would be any different because I've had such an enjoyable and rewarding career in this sector. Um, I think maybe it would be to just try and find my tribe earlier and to, to not feel so isolated. I mean, being the only female attorney in an 18 attorney law firm, uh, you know, let alone being part of the LGBTIQ community. So yeah, and that layer on top of the that component. discrimination that you're you're facing. I think it would be to find other people to to have that um, so solidarity and support. And, you know, isn't she I was teaching um, construction law and Monash Uni last week and, and the topic was uh, gender equality in the construction industry. And I gave them uh, you know, I said, these are all the things that we've tried so far. And I had a slide up listing, you know, everything that we have tried to increase the number of women coming into the industry and to help retain them when they get there. And I said, your job now as groups of, you know, 20-something-year-olds is come up with some new ideas. What could we be could we be trying now? And and they came up. It was it was a really good activity because they came up with some good ideas. And And one of them was about... You know, making sure that you don't employ one woman at a time, but you employ a cohort so that they do have each other for support. That was one. But a common one was about uh, how they expressed it was follow the money trail. So make economic incentives to um, get uh, construction sector businesses to employ women through tax breaks or uh, grants or things like that so that it's not just relying on their doing the right thing, 
And, you know, I also, my other area of expertise is, is human rights law. And I do draw a lot. People go, they're so different. How can you be a construction lawyer and a human rights lawyer? And I'd say, they do actually cross over. And they cross over in this area of gender equality and about how you, you get change. Because I'm all about change and reform. And, you know, there have been times when we didn't talk about human rights as human rights lawyers because, you know, it was in the John Howard era and as when he was Prime Minister and, you know, human rights just had a bad rap as being sort of Chardonnay sibling left-wing um, academics. Yeah, right. And so we changed our language. We talked about, you know, having a fair go and things like that that, that would resonate more. And I think it's a bit like that in the construction industry, just trying to get um, and persuade people that they should be um, recruiting and retaining and actively doing everything they can to get more gender equality in the industry. Not because it's the right thing to do, but coming up with other reasons. And, you know, it's an improvement for men. I mean, you know, we talk about the incredibly high suicide rate that we've got in the construction industry, uh, which absolutely. is way out of step with the rest of society for young men. And maybe one of the ways we can address that is having more gender equality in the industry. Well, I absolutely agree. I think the statistics around um, suicide in construction is one worker every second day. Yes. That is how many take their lives a year, which is just astonishing. That's only in construction. This is a huge problem for the industry. Yes. And something has to change. And, you know, we already know that women provide a lot of different um, elements and that's what makes it great because, as you were saying before, we all bring a level of difference to, to the industry. And I think we need that. We need that difference and that change to really shift that culture. And so we hear a lot about, you know, misconceptions uh, and sometimes they're actually being mistaken for barriers. So can we be myth busters today? From your own lived experience, what are some of the, the barriers Versus the misconceptions. Okay, so this is it's a great question. Some of the misconceptions I think are that you've got to be this strong, butch, tough woman to do construction, um, and that it's all about you know heavy lifting and and things like that. And really, construction. I keep saying to my students, it's a it's a people industry. It's about working with people to get a job done and. You know, we've got so many uh, great machinery and equipment yeah. that it's not about strength and brute force anymore. So that's one of, I think, the misconceptions that keeps women out of, you know, the trades and, and the on-site jobs. So I'd love to see that myth busted. You know, I think we can learn a little bit from the mining sector. They drive these massive trucks and mm. they are doing everything they can to get women drivers for these trucks because they say they treat them so much better. They're so much more you know, gentle and delicate and sensitive with the gear changing and with the way they work these these trucks, the men just sort of, you know, thrash it all about. So I think there's a lot of benefits for the industry and for women and for men by having uh, women there, but certainly, yes, it is not just about brute force and strength that you need to be in the in the construction sector. And I think that it's you know women have the brains that lend themselves to construction as as well, and that you don't need to you know have testosterone to 
figure out, you know, engineering calculations or uh, to lay bricks or whatever it might be, that I think the, the lack of confidence in, in women that this is not something that they can do and they're more suited to childcare or nursing or teaching or, or something is to really go, actually, A, you're suited to this and B, you'll find it really rewarding. And so I guess we often hear a lot of this, you know, construction has a poor reputation, especially for its treatment for women, you know, so it's got a poor reputation. We've seen it in schools where um, parents don't want their daughters to go into the construction industry because of what they hear about it. So what if, what's been your experience about that that reputation surrounding construction? Oh, it's, it's real. I don't know that I'd be encouraging my daughter to go into the... Uh, construction industry until it gets better because there are just too many horror stories of the way women continue to be treated in in construction. So it is this bit of chicken and egg problem in that I don't think the culture of the industry is going to change until there are more women in there. And we're not going to get more women in there while it's still got such a poor culture and we're not going to get women to stay. And there's been some interesting studies from Norway about quotas and and getting women in and what they have discovered. It was in the context of uh, women on boards, but I think it it can be generalised out a bit more than that, is that 40% is a critical mass. Culture doesn't change until 40% of the workers are women. And that's when it becomes normalised to be a woman you know, on a board or you know on a construction site. But when you are continue to be, you know, the cultural change doesn't happen. So I think when, you know, Victoria has introduced a target of, you know, these very low numbers for women working on government projects in the trades and in the non-trades and in management, and I just think they're not ambitious enough. And and, and the industry is already saying, how are we going to meet these targets? You know, where are these women going to come from? So I think we have to get a lot more creative about how and where we recruit women into the industry from. Um, and we need to be far more ambitious about the number of women that we're trying to get into the into the sector because change isn't going to happen in, if we just are drip feeding women here and there. Yeah. And so because of that, because we know that change doesn't happen until that 40% mark, and we've seen a number of studies come through of, of the change that can happen once we hit that critical mass, what would you encourage business leaders to do when they uh, or to consider when they're hiring women? Because I know a lot of the things is we're getting women into the pipeline, but it's a leaky pipeline and a lot of them are just leaving. So what is your advice to the business leaders? Yeah, look, a, a lot. Um, <laughs> one of the things, that, one of the stories that, that always stuck with me is there's a, um, a woman that I found very inspiring, a, a New Zealand architect called Helen Tippett. And she was a leading architect. She's passed away now, but she always wanted to be an engineer. And she went to the engineering faculty at the University in New Zealand. I can't remember which one it was. I think in Wellington, and said, "I want to do engineering." They said, "We will only take you if you can find another woman to join you, because we think it's very too hard if you do it on your own. But if there's two of you, well, we'll take you." You know, she talked to in year year twelve, and uh, anyway, she couldn't find another woman to do engineering. So she be- she did architecture. She became a very successful architecture, but always had that resentment that she hadn't been able to pursue her dream. So I think it's really important that when you're recruiting, whether it's in university or employment, you've got to hire more than one at a time. 
because they need to have that support. I think I would be encouraging employers to look more broadly in terms of where they are recruiting from. And I've seen this recently with Victoria Police, Big Pole. They are trying to recruit more mature police officers rather than school leavers or university graduates. And so they've got an active marketing campaign that's sort of targeting mums whose kids are maybe now in high school and they've got more time, come and join the police. And, you know, older men who uh, perhaps they're dissatisfied in their careers, you know, come and join the police. So they're looking at sort of 30, 40, 50-year-old people to plug the gap, the, the hole that they've got in the numbers of of police. So I think we need to be breaking down a lot of assumptions about who is going to be a good fit in, in construction and look at older workers, look at workers with uh, disabilities, look at Indigenous workers, look at immigrants. Um, yeah. So I think broadening the field for where we recruit. And then I also think doing gender blind recruiting. So, you know, because I'm a professor, I look at look at the research. I want to make my decisions based on the evidence. And there was research done about how professors hire research assistants. And overwhelmingly, it, they were male research assistants. When they produced CVs and gave them CVs that had no indication of the gender on, more than 50% of the research assistants they recruited were women. Wow. So it's very clear that we... Uh, do have, and I'm, I'm not saying it's deliberate, but we have an unconscious bias that makes us want to recruit people who we think are going to be a good fit. And good fit is code for they're like us. Yeah. So I think we have to really change our recruitment practices that so we don't just go, oh, I worked with him before on that last job and he was great, so I'm going to bring that him along on this on new job. the shoulder. You yeah. know, that's a big issue for the industry as well. Yes. It's that tap on the shoulder. Yeah. So, yeah, I'd say uh, gender-blind recruiting. I absolutely love that. And um, and so, Paula, what we're trying to do at Nowick is also expand our reach so that we have listeners from all different industries to understand what the construction is like. Uh, we don't want to sugarcoat it, obviously, but there's also clearly uh, reasons why women stay and love the industry. Can you tell us why you love the industry and what you love about your role? Sure. Um, look, I started off my first job in law was in banking and finance and I hated it. It was just paper <laughs> shuffling and it, it wasn't real. And so it's, you know, pardon the pun, but the construction industry is really concrete. <laughs> I, my kids and dad, hey, I, I did the, the, the contracts for that building there and I worked on this and it is the tangible nature of the industry and you know the legacy that it leaves on our society by the infrastructure and the buildings that, that they create and it is the people. Um, I They are down to earth real um, people that we're working with including other construction lawyers. I mean you know, it's, I'm on the dis, it was on the dispute side before I moved into academia, and you know, you don't usually become friends with the people who you're litigating against on the other side. But because the construction law pool is quite small, um, we were you know coming across each other time and time again, and and yeah, I've, you know, I've got really good friendships from my time working in the construction legal fraternity, and now you know, on the academic side, I love doing the. The research that can inform and influence, you know, change into the future to provide that that evidence base that get, can give confidence that if we tried this, 
there's a good chance it's going to it's going to work. And I love being involved with um, the young students and seeing them so you know enthusiastic and excited about starting their career and and giving them the sort of the hopefully the learning from my experience that they do stay and find it a rewarding career. And I guess that's a really good point because they they're excited. A lot of a lot of the people that we see coming into the industry are excited to be in the industry, but that slowly fades, especially in our trades area for for young women. It drops off quite dramatically. Uh-huh. So, what would you like to see happen for women in construction and construction in general? Well, I think the construction industry is resistant to change. And so whether that's, you know, AI or gender balance or other forms of diversity in the industry, it's resistant. So we need structural change to happen in order to keep women longer term because, you know, women are still ones who are going to have children and be the primary carers in the in the early years. And so having work hours that are completely opposite to what women require when they've got young children is not sustainable. And the fact that we've always done it this way is not a reason to keep doing it. Correct. Because, you know, if we always do what we've always done, we're always going to end up where we've always ended up. So working hours is a big thing that that needs to change. 7 a.m. starts when you've got women who have to get kids to school is is not realistic. No. So what I'd like to see is it's not just about the numbers. It's not just about, you know, we get this many women and, and X percent will stay and that'll fix the problem. And if we change the practices and the way the industry works, that benefits men as well. So changing the practices, changing the culture is going to make it a happier, more productive workplace for everyone. And, you know, again, I'd encourage looking overseas, looking at other jurisdictions as to how they've addressed these problems. And there was really made a study in the UK where they reduced the working week to four days a week. And um, they did it as a trial, I think, for 16 weeks. And they found, uh, you know, some people were paid the same amount. Workers got the same pay, but they did their work in four days. And over that 16 weeks, they saw a slight improvement in productivity, about 6%, I think. So they kept the practice. Six months later, the productivity improvement was over 30%. Wow. Because workers were happier. And happy workers are productive workers. You know, maybe we start doing things on a trial basis because it's a bit scary to do radical change. (laughs) Exactly. See that it works. And then we can roll it out more more broadly. Yeah, I agree. I um, I do think construction ha- it's been called the dinosaur of industries, oh. and you can see that it is because there is that resistance to change, as you said. So, do you think the government can play a role in helping us achieve these changes? What do you think they could do for women in construction? My attitude now is very different to what it was twenty eight years ago when I set up Maywick. Because then I thought it's about the industry changing itself and we get the, the leaders in the room, we have these conversations, if they recognise, you know, why and how they can do this, change will happen. 28 years later, when we're, numbers have gone backwards in terms of female participation in the construction industry, I'm now going, okay, it's time for the law to get involved. There's this term called demis prudence, which is about how 
law changes society and society changes law and it's this sort of push-pull effect. And the story I tell is about a sociologist professor from New York, Tom Stoddard, who was a gay guy in the 1990s, 1996, he wanted to go on a holiday to a place that was going to be gay paradise. And so he landed on New Zealand because he looked at the laws and New Zealand had decriminalised homosexuality that included sexual orientation as a prohibited grounds of discrimination. And so he thought this is going to be a gay paradise. And he went to New Zealand and it was the opposite. He said on paper it looked great, but the societal attitudes were still really homophobic. And it was like being in you know, a Southern American state in the 1950s. So even though New York didn't have all the legal protections that New Zealand had, it was a much safer place for gays. So law and societal attitudes have to move at the same time. And he coined this term, Dennis Bruton, if the law moves ahead of societal attitudes, it's not going to achieve the change that we want it to achieve. So I think societal attitudes are now closer to where the law can step in and say, actually, we're going to require you to change. We are going to require you to change your culture, to change your behaviours, to have a more women-friendly work environment. So I'm now at the point, after 28 years of having these conversations and not achieving the change we want, of saying, okay, I think there's a role for the law to play in here in actually mandating it and pushing people, giving them that push to make the change. And then maybe in another 28 years' time, we won't need the laws because there will have been that's that structural, systemic, cultural shift in the construction industry. It's such a fresh point because it is that that chicken and the egg again. You know, the yeah, we can't put in a law unless society is ready, and society has to be. You know, it's so fascinating that you speak of that. And so, for me, a lot of the challenges that I've seen whilst working with Nawik has been women don't feel safe, and so they're leaving the industry. And there's this stigma that is surrounded by the industry. So what do you think we need to change that culture, to make it safer, to remove that stigma so that women do look at it as a viable option and then stay in there? So, again, I look to what my experience was in in other countries. And in California, women didn't feel unsafe in, in construction and they weren't leaving in droves. And so what was different about California to Australia? I think it comes down to the law. And at that time, the government had a program of women-owned businesses or minority-owned businesses, women business enterprise, WBE and MBE, women business enterprise, minority business enterprise. And on any government project, 50% of your subcontractors or suppliers or contractors had to be WBEs or MBEs. So it wasn't just about having a woman tradesperson on the side. It was actually having women in positions of leadership and power and owning businesses. So women were setting up their own painting companies, electrical companies, plumbing companies, confident that the work was going to come their way. And over time, that program has been has been ditched because it's not needed anymore, because there are lots of successful women and minority-owned businesses in the construction sector in California. So I think we need to think creatively about what policies and programs can we introduce that are going to mean 
that women aren't coming in at the most junior level, which makes them the most vulnerable, that they're coming in at a more senior level and being treated with respect and dignity. And it's got to be a holistic approach. So, um, you know, changing law or policy is one piece of the jigsaw puzzle. Another is going to be a media campaign. Another is going to be education, raising awareness, uh, support infrastructures in there as well. So we've got to tackle this problem from multiple dimensions. And again, I'd, I'd echo that just looking at it as a gender problem gender issue is not the right approach. We need to look at it as, as there is a lack of cognitive diversity. How do we get more diversity in the industry as a whole? So, you know, I really like that California approach. It was women business enterprise or minority business enterprise. Let, we want more diversity from multiple sectors of, of society. You know, you touched on talking about um, learning from different countries and what's been so great is we've connected with NALIC in, or NALIC in USA New Zealand, Qatar, um, Singapore, UK, we're actually holding soon a, a an international NALIC panel to understand what they're doing in their country so that our members, I guess, can understand what other countries are doing and maybe start to pull in a little bit of those gems, I guess, or things that are working and implement them in Australia. So I really love that yeah. hearing that the international focus is also part of your plan because it's something that we want to do as well and just bring everyone together and, you know, really harness those great ideas from all over the world. Well, I'd love to share a story with you from the early days of, of NAWIC in Australia, which was this very idea of learning from each other. I negotiated with NAWIC in America to have an international exchange program and I got Qantas as the sponsor and we had uh, an electrician from... Adelaide go to Austin, Texas, and an architect from Texas go to Brisbane for a 12-month exchange program. So we, we covered their airfares, we helped with accommodation, and we lined up a job for them. The electrician from uh, South Australia, Tracy Clavelk, couldn't wait to come back Elf. because she said it was really hard. She'd, she'd uh, learned her trade in a metric system, and she was going to imperial measurements. Oh, gosh. But she felt like it was going backwards. So she enjoyed the time. I went and visited her over there and, and when she was there, but, yeah, she couldn't wait to come back. The architect from Texas is still living in Brisbane. Oh, wait. <laughs> she didn't go back. So that was the end of our international exchange program <laughs> because it turned out for the Americans to be a one-way uh, one street. But, you know, it, it'll be very interesting for NAWIC to explore those sort of opportunities again of international yeah. exchanges. Oh, absolutely. I'm going to add that to our list of things <laughs> to consider. That is that is just gold. Uh, and Paula, you have been such a wonderful delight to speak to today. I, I do have one final question for you. You know about NAWIC's, you know, 25% of women into construction by 2025. Yep. We know that it might not be the stretch that we need but it's it's a start. We're trying to push it out there to the industry. We're trying to get people to to come on board and and adopt their own targets and and to change that industry. What pledge would you commit to for the next year in relation to getting more women in construction, whether that's attracting and retaining and growing our women? What is your pledge? Um, my my pledge is I guess drawing on my school base, which is doing the 
the research and the writing and, and providing the evidence base. And, and the project that I'm working on that I'm, I'm pledging to commit uh, to finishing very soon is part of what's called um, the Feminist Legislation Project. And what we are doing is rewriting legislation and writing new legislation from a feminist perspective. And I was approached to be part of this project and they've got you know, uh, people who are doing family law rewriting or criminal law rewriting and human rights. And I go, okay, do I do human rights? Do I do construction? What's, what area will I focus on? And I decided to focus on construction. And what I'm doing with, with one of my PhD students, Rebecca Dixon, is we are drafting legislation to put quotas in place for the construction sector. And, um, and we're writing in a really practical way that the government can hopefully look at and go, actually, yeah, we can implement this. So that's what I'm going to be doing this year to, to try to uh, get more women into construction. Oh, absolutely adore that woman. She is amazing. Um, and so I think the two of you doing that work together is just going to produce some phenomenal uh, law for the government to, to hopefully instill in the construction industry. Thank you so much, Paula, for joining us today. Thank you for starting Now Week in Australia and thank you for continuing to support us all the way. It's an absolute honour and pleasure to have spoken to you today. Well, thank you for the work you're doing and thank you to the 10,000 NAWIC members who are all, you know, we are getting this army uh, together to affect change, so I am feeling optimistic about the future. Paula, that was a, a really great conversation. I learned so much from you. I just loved it. Oh, great. Oh, well, I hope there's some useful material in there and yeah my pleasure thanks for listening to this episode of the leaky pipeline let us know your thoughts about this episode or leave us a review wherever you get your podcast don't forget to share us with your friends and to find out more about narwick head to our website at narwick.com.au